Hi, this is Carol, and you're listening to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In our last episode, we spoke to Eugene Tang from SEMP about their FinTech Report 2020. We briefly discussed the halted IPO of Ant Financial, now known as Ant Group, but didn't get to dive deeper into the issue. So today, we've invited a longtime friend of the show, Miss Rayma, to help our listeners understand the wild ride that is the Ant Group IPO. Welcome back onto the show, Ray. Thanks for having me back. And for those of you who don't know, Ray is the creator and host of the Tech Buzz China podcast by Pen Daily, produced by SubChina, and a venture partner at Synaptic Ventures. So, Ray, since our last conversation in April on the show about the Luckin Coffee scandal, what have you been up to? Since I was last on the show, well, been here busy in the U.S. following the political environment <laughs> <laughs> and the pandemic data. But other than that, on the tech buzz front, we've been consistently putting out content, and specifically for myself, I have been focused on ByteDance and the way it innovates. Actually, writing an ebook on it, so hopefully that will come out in a few months. Oh, that is so exciting, and I'm very much looking forward to it. And of course, we will need to have you back on the show once that is out. <laughs> yeah, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. So let's start talking about Ant Group and why China slammed the brakes on their IPO. But before we start talking about the IPO, let's try to understand the company a little bit more. Can you tell our listeners about how you know Ant Group was initially started as Alipay by Jack Ma and then became Ant Financial? I believe there was also like a huge controversy about the founding of Alipay as well. That's right. So, like you said, Ant Group started off as basically a function on Taobao, Alibaba's consumer-to-consumer C2C marketplace, which is basically like eBay. And when Taobao was started in 2003, one of the huge issues that users were facing was that you had these buyers and sellers who didn't know each other and didn't trust each other. So, how do you get them to transact? Well. Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, you know, looked at what was going on in the West and said, "We need to have an escrow service," and that's what Alipay started off as. So, actually, only about five months after Taobao was launched, the team launched an escrow service, and this escrow service was so successful because it solved a crucial user need, right? Solving this problem of trust, it became、uh, very popular, and it was basically included in seventy percent. Of the transactions on Taobao. Well, now that it was clear that this was going to be a widely used thing, they basically spent a lot more time on the product and made it into a full-fledged digital payment system. So Alibaba put a lot of resources into Alipay, and you know, recruited not just. Online buyers and sellers, but also offline merchants to incorporate Alipay and accept Alipay. And when the smartphone came round, they launched a series of apps. Well, mainly the Alipay mobile payment app. When the smartphone was launched, they saw the opportunity for mobile payments and quickly jumped on the bandwagon and basically made Alipay into a very popular mobile payment app as well. So by the time when 2009, 2010 came about, and the Chinese government had basically seen all these digital payment startups spring up, but didn't actually have an official way of regulating it, so didn't have an official license for these 
companies, the government was like, hey, we should do something about this because this is clearly going to take off. We're going to start giving out third-party payment licenses. And by the way, because this is a sort of sensitive part of our financial ecosystem, maybe having a foreign shareholder is not going to be kosher, right? And at this point, Alibaba, which still owned Alipay, was actually 70% owned by foreign interests. So mm-hmm. it was its largest shareholders were SoftBank and Yahoo, which is a Japanese and you know American company. So in that sense, you could consider it sort of foreign owned. So Jack Ma basically went to the board and said, we need to do something about this ownership issue or else we're not going to get our license. So we're not going to be able to operate. Um, unfortunately, the board of apparently, according to Jack, did not come to a consensus on what to do and sort of table the matter. And then Jack's basically went out and, you know, changed ownership of Alipay by himself (laughs) because he was like, if I don't do so, we're not going to get the licenses. This business is going to die. And that still remains a very controversial decision to this day. But, you know, he claims he did it for the sake of the company and the employees and, of course, the shareholders. So he went ahead and did that. This wasn't discovered until 2011. That's a spinoff incident that you're talking about that is... Yeah, I, I, I would say still to this day, still quite controversial and is probably one of the bigger stains on Jack's legacy. But it ensured that Alipay was one of the first entities to get that coveted license and was able to operate. Yeah, definitely touched a lot of people's cheese with those moves. So what is the current ownership of Ant Group like now? And who are the key stakeholders? The key stakeholders, the way it looks is that, well, if you look at just the ownership, it's about half owned by Jack, the senior management and also existing and former employees of Ant and Alibaba. Jack himself is about 8% of the company, but he does, you know, he gets the voting rights to all those employees management shares. So so he is the controlling shareholder in, in terms of the voting power. After that, actually, it's pretty fragmented because by the time you understand by the time like Alipay came out and became its own business and was raising money separately from Alibaba, it was also it was already quite large. So it was, it was raising money in the billions of dollars to start. Some of its more notable shareholders includes the National Council for the Social Security Fund, which owns about 3%. After that, I think it's trying to life insurance at 1%. And then after that, everyone else is just like these teeny tiny shareholdings, fractions of percents, and they include all sorts of banks and insurance companies and notable PE firms like General Atlantic and, you know, financial institutions uh, like BlackRock, Fidelity, etc. They all own part of Ant Group. But quite a few American companies as well who have a stake in this. Definitely. Who's who of the finance world, basically. That's right. Everyone, yeah, everyone who is anyone and who could get an allocation is going to be in Ant Group. Sure wish I was one of those Alibaba employees, though. (laughs) I remember there were, you know, jokes going on in the Chinese internet space when the IPO was announced about how, you know, you could hear the roar from the entire and financial building when that announcement was made. It's going to make a lot of people very rich. Yeah, Um, it was something like 50. I, I included this in one of the articles I wrote. It was, I think it was like, almost 60 people who are going to be worth at least $100 million. And that was at the initial IPO price that people were guessing, which, you know, by the time it was about to be 
going out, it was going to be almost double that. So, so they were going to be significantly richer than even that. Oof, I'm just shaking my head. <laughs> so let's talk about the actual、um, branches of business that they offer. What are they, and how are these business structured? Yeah, so the original Alipay business, which is it's still a digital payments business, is about、uh, is a little over a third of the revenue. But it's not the fastest growing. It's been around for a long time. It's got a billion annual active users, and it's a pretty thin margin business, right? So effectively, like Alibaba charges. Like a point six percent, I think, to the merchants. If you look at the other businesses where it really makes more of its, you know, profits these days, and where also、uh, the growth is going to be, that's separated into credit tech, investment tech, and insurance tech. And all three of these, Ant Group considers them to be part of digital finance technology platform. So, what does that mean? That means all of these are trying to be, in a sense, a, a sort of platform. Now. Now, the investment tech and insurance tech really are—you can really think of them as like marketplaces where they do what you think, or they do what the name suggests they do, right? So, on the investment tech side, you can basically go on and find investment products to put your money in and invest in, and then on the insurance for the same. The, the same thing. You can go and buy insurance products. The credit tech is a little bit different. The credit tech is actually almost forty percent of the revenues, and it's about half of the profits. So this is Ant's largest and most profitable business. And the credit tech part is offering consumers credit as well as loans, and they also do small business loans. And for this part, the reason why credit tech makes More margin on this is because, in some sense, these are more profitable products, and some of them they actually take some risk. So they are the lender, and they put up some of the capital. Because a lot of our listeners might have never used Alipay before and don't really have, you know, access to all of these different、um, product offerings. So can you tell listeners a little bit more about the specific products? So, for example, I know if,、uh, under Credit Tech, there's probably you know Jima Credit, and I imagine Huabei is probably. Under that as well, can you talk a little bit more about the specific products that they offer? So you make a good point, right? So Juma Credit is basically、uh, Alibaba's so internal sort of credit rating system for all its users. But because it has this massive digital payments business, like I said, a billion annual active users, it's able to assign you know credit worthiness to quite a bunch of people. And using this. Juma credit system, then they can give out like actual consumer credit lines, and that product is called Huabei, which stands for or which means just spend, right? And the idea is basically when you're in Alipay and you are on a, a website, an Alibaba asset or affiliate that accepts Alipay, and you're you signed up for Huabei. Then Ant will give you a credit limit, and you're able to use that credit limit to consume.、Um, so it's just like a credit card. You get 41 days interest-free, and then after that, right now it's roughly 15% percent、uh, annualized interest rate if you if you choose to keep you know a outstanding balance. Another product under Credit Tech is Jiebe, which means just borrow, and it's basically consumer loans. You can get up to I think 40. Thousand dollars or so. Although again, it depends on your Juma credit score. Then you know, Ant will score you and figure out how much 
they can give you in loans. Uh, for this, it's not tied to a consumption, right? This is not like a credit card where you can only tap the line if you're buying something. For Jiebei, you can you can just take out a loan and you can use it towards whatever you want. So Jiebei is for consumers. They also have MyBank, which is for small businesses. That's a entity that. Ant owns 30% of. So my bank basically is able to give small businesses loans. And similarly, they use the big data from Ant Group and is able to do this in a very automated fashion very, very quickly. In fact, they both have zero humans involved in the process. Those are really the three big things under credit tech. With investment tech, I think the one thing that maybe listeners might have heard of is Yuobao. This is actually a seven-year-old product that Ant Group launched that was a money market fund. And it basically encouraged people to take the spare cash they had sitting in their e-wallets and put it into a money market fund where it could earn interest. But it was super liquid. So you could take it out, you know, 24-7 at any time you want. And there was no barrier to investing because the minimum amount was just one RMB. And it became so popular that it was at one point the largest money market fund in the world. It's still over $170 billion today. Obviously has a lot more competitors based on the success of that product and actually made that into a marketplace. So you can find a lot more uh, than just Yuobao, for example, on, on their investment tech platform. Now you can find, I think, a, a few thousand other investment products. What about under insurance tech? Oh, insurance tech is very similar to investment tech. So again, they work with, I think, 90 partners and you can buy you know any kind of insurance product. I think for insurance tech, I think the upside is that recently China actually liberalized this part of the financial system and you can have foreign insurance companies go in and not have to enter through joint venture. They could actually be wholly owned. And, you know, there's a lot of people rushing in to uh, sell insurance now to uh, Chinese people and Chinese businesses. No wonder I'm getting a lot of um, pushes for, you know, live streams or seminars to learn more about the insurance options that I have through my Alipay app. Yeah, yeah, I'm actually an avid user of my Alipay app. I've been trying to build my Jima credit for some time now because I moved back to China about, you know, three years ago. So I've been building my credit from scratch. Yes, starting from then. And you know, we talk about how Huawei is very similar to a credit card, but it's much smarter. So whenever I travel overseas, well, not this year, but in previous years, I would get a lot of extra credit um, just for the period of my travel. So because, you know, you're traveling, you're likely spending more money or it's encouraging you to do so. So you set aside a special uh, amount or they up your limit just for that time period. And also for around, you know, double 11, the shop shopping holiday. Huawei often gives extra credit just for um, the shopping holiday as well to encourage your spending. Man, I'm always getting um, my limit increased. So I pretty much only use Huawei to pay for the goods and services that I purchase instead of a credit card, which is also what I would usually use if I was in Canada. Yeah, I haven't used Jiebei or any of the other products, but I also do invest through Alipay as well. 
Not that I'm very good at it, but I find it very easy to use. And Yuaba as well, it money just gets transferred in. It's super easy to use. I think people underestimate how addictive this app can be with their you know daily check-ins with the trees and stuff, which we can talk about a little bit later. So Ant Financial also changed their name right recently. It was in June 2020 when they changed it to Ant Group, wanting to you know stress that they're not just a finance company but a tech company. Why do you think they wanted to shift away from this kind of branding? And do you believe in this rhetoric? I didn't realize that was actually just in June. Wow, that's really recent. For some reason, I thought they had done this a little earlier. But I mean, the reason is pretty simple. It's that you get much higher multiples when you are a tech company. Yeah, instead of a financial services company, right? For example, ICBC, you know, one of the largest banks in China is only like 250 billion dollars in market cap, but it's significantly bigger than if you look at like their deposits and loans, your standard financial metrics. But for Ant, you know, makes a lot more sense to want to be valued as a tech company. And it is true, they do have a lot of technology. Another thing is that, you know, the more you can be positioning yourself as a tech company and the less that you are a bank and you're, you know, you're just a financial technology provider to the bank, then maybe you don't get hit with some of the regulations that banking institutions get hit with because that's a highly, highly regulated industry. Obviously, with the IPO halt, we can see that they didn't quite fully succeed in doing that. That's right. So talking about you know financial regulations, how has Ant Group worked within the regulatory landscape in the financial services sector in China thus far? Yeah, so I'm not super clear on every single license it's had, but with respect to the IPO halt, I think there's a couple that we can highlight. So, so number one, first of all, we already know that they had to get that third-party payment license, right, back in 2011. I think that license, as I mentioned, basically didn't come out until these companies have been operating for quite a few years. So again, that's very a good example of how Chinese governments tend to regulate. They don't tend to step in with very you know, concrete rules until some experiments have been running for a while. And that's kind of what's happening here. With Ant, what they did was when they started Huabei and Jiebei, they got these micro lending licenses. Mm-hmm. And these micro lending licenses, again, they went to a specific city in Western China because, you know, in China, you can get differential policy depending on which city or province you go to because each province or city might have different goals and different industries they're trying to support. So for Jack Ma at the time, this is all public information, he tried to get a micro-lending license near Hangzhou where Alibaba is, but couldn't because there was a lot of alarm about P2P lending. So any kind of lending business was just being being very scrutinized. So he went out west to a city called Chongqing and he went and got a, a license there from the mayor in micro lending. He promised to stay out of P2P, which he did. This is basically how he was able to build up the Huawei and Jiebei business. But as we'll learn later, we can probably discuss this later, is that that wasn't more regulations are incoming, right? That just getting that license is not enough to ensure that no future rules come out. I do think that one of the things I want to highlight is that the IPO halt came about two weeks after he made this speech 
at the Bun Summit. The Bun Summit is actually a very, very high level financial services and financial technologies conference in China annually. Like the keynote speakers, like the vice president of China, right? So you don't, you don't really get people of that level unless this is like a very important conference. Jack Ma is probably one of the least important people there and was one of the few fintech companies who spoke. I think it was the only one actually, aside from other banks like HSBC or whatever. So they do have really good relationships with the regulators. It's not like they cut any corners per se when it came to establishing their businesses. It's, I, I do think the, way, the proper way to really look at it is that there wasn't a lot of oversight on these businesses until recently, until more recently. Not like until this year, but until the the last couple of years. Because you mentioned the Bun Summit, so mainstream you know media outlets have reported that the Chinese government halted the IPO due to the remarks that he made in a recent conference, which I believe is the Bun Summit. What was said by him, and what are the concerns of the Chinese government, and are the concerns of the Chinese government legitimate in wanting you know Ant Group to resolve their issues like the requirement of at least. 30% deposit with, with the banks. So those rules came out after the Bun Summit speech. But uh, I, yeah, I can summarize for you what the Bun Summit speech was. It was like not a very long speech. It was about 20 minutes. He spoke on basically how the current financial system in China was not adequately meeting the needs of youth and small business owners because it was too risk averse. He specifically called the banks as having a pawn shop mentality. And as you know, pawn shops require you, right, to give them assets, right, before you can, you know, take out loans against the assets. So in his opinion, that was reducing risk maybe, but that was not allowing for growth, right? And the youth of today, Jack Ma is like a very big proponent of youth because he you start off as an English teacher in education and youth development is one of his big pet causes. So he keeps on saying that like, hey, the youth of today, we need more growth. We can't just have this obsessive focus on reducing risk. That was a huge point of controversy with the regulators, <laughs> as, as later reporting showed, because he was basically saying that the regulators couldn't keep up. The regulators were using very outdated policies for, for an economy that's very dynamic. So specifically, he used this metaphor, which is that like, oh, you know, you're giving medicine meant for dementia to a child, who's suffering from polio, right? So I described his tone of voice as quite audacious. I think some people found it just kind of offensive. Offensive, right. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, I would be completely unsurprised if the regulators, by the way, who were sitting in the audience in front of him were very displeased with that kind of very aggressive rhetoric. That's right. The Bun Summit took place, I believe, between October 23rd to 25th and very shortly after, around November 4th, which is when the, the Chinese government halted the IPO. So I guess, I mean, the speech could be a, a reason. And then they came out with more regulations, right? Can you talk a little bit more about that? So the timeline of events is this. The IPO is supposed to happen on November 5th. 
and November 2nd, Jack Ma, along with some other executives at Ant, get called in for this meeting with the regulators. And it's like a very serious official sit down. It had to be announced on the company's webpage because this was an uh, official meeting. And right after the meeting ended, a series of rules came out regulating the micro lending industry. So there were several you know, rules. There was about like 10. And the most important one for Ant was that it required now micro lending enterprises in the loans they facilitate to put up 30% of the capital. Now for Ant at this point, they had not been doing that. They had been, you know, long story short, they had taken advantage of some, I wouldn't call it loopholes, but just like lack of oversight initially and initially for the first four years of the Huawei business, they were actually doing more than 100 times leverage That's crazy. Um, through asset-backed securities. Yeah. But that did stop in 2018. You know, a lot of people like bring that up as an example. And I get that citizens are very angry when they hear this happen, but like actually it ended two years ago. <laughs> but in the last two years, it's still been, you know, putting up very little capital, primarily working with banking partners and, and selling the banks the loans, right? So, you know, this wouldn't be basically, I think, as big of a problem if we didn't consider the fact that, number one, all the data is owned by Ant, so they are scoring the loans. Yes, the banks do, you know, do their own secondary scoring as well, but Ant is really has like the in the power dynamic, it's it's much more powerful here. It's also because it owns all the Alipay users and the wallets, you know, like you, people who trust their platform and are willing to put the money on the platform and spend on the platform, then, you know, they, they also have just like a huge origination tool there. So for Ant, basically, as the founder of Bridgewater, Ray Dalio, said, and I think this is probably the most accurate assessment, it's such a new way of doing business that, and it's growing so quickly and it's so complete in itself that he basically called it, you know, a threat to the traditional banking system because they can effectively replace it. That hasn't happened, obviously, but it's not out of the question. And that's a huge reason why the regulators had to come in and slap some more rules around it. I believe that. Yeah, it could definitely replace the traditional banking industry. Honestly, I don't know why I still need <laughs> to go to the banks. <laughs> that's right. Other than because of the fees that they charge for uh, taking out the money. So I still try to save my money at the bank versus all on the platform. If the Ant IPO did actually take place, what would have been the prospects of growth for the company though? If the IPO took place, this is what would have happened, right? So most people believe, and there's no reason to doubt this, that the regulations that came out were pretty complete. And I asked many people in the industry and they all knew some version of this was going to come out. They didn't know exactly like, oh, it was going to be 30% or uh, whatever, but they knew like, the government had been talking to them and there was going to be more oversight over this micro lending industry that was completely expected. If it had come out after the IPO, I don't know exactly what the prospects of Ant's growth specifically would have been. The guess most people have is that it would have slowed down a little bit, right? Maybe a lot, who knows? But depending on how the rules are actually interpreted, depending on how the rules are going to be interpreted, Ant could have been in a capital shortfall of something like 20 plus billion dollars. I've seen estimates greater than that actually, but like a lot of the estimates really start off at 20 billion dollars. And if you think about it, the IPO is only going to raise 35 billion, right? So maybe the, a lot of the proceeds might have been 
force to be used immediately towards plugging in this capital shortfall. Of course, they, I'm sure they can raise money in other ways as well. But the idea is that if the anti-IPO would have gone through, I think what would have happened is that the regulations were expected to be coming. People knew that the policymakers have been talking to them. This is a you know a multi-month, year-plus process. If the regulations came out after the IPO, it would have definitely hurt its valuation. And I think that actually is also another concern why the IPO was halted at the last minute instead of after the IPO, right? It's because Ant was about to list on the Star Exchange. The Star Exchange is China's newest attempt at building an answer to the NASDAQ, and it is for tech companies. But what most people don't realize is that the Star Exchange is, you know, because it's very new, it's only a about a year old, it's also very small. So it's if Ant had listed, especially at the price that it was, it looked like it was going to go out at, which was north of $300 billion, close to $400 billion, it would have easily been the largest company. It would have probably been like something like 40% of the entire market cap of the of the Star Exchange. Yeah, I know. And that's not even taking into account the fact that most likely because of the demand on the stock pre-IPO, there was something like $3 trillion worth of retail demand. There's every reason to suspect that Ant might have like gone up immediately post-IPO and probably doubled, mm-hmm. right? So that happens, by the way, a lot on the Star Exchange. You have these, you know, sexy tech IPOs and a lot of retail investors who are starved and institutional investors too, but who are starved for quality tech companies. And so you know, it gets bit up. So there's a lot of excitement. And if that happened to Ant, then it would have been an even greater share of of the Star Exchange. And if there was then some regulation that hurt its bottom line, right, hurt its profitability, hurt its growth prospects, then it could have crashed the market. So it would definitely have made uh, shareholders in Ant that bought into its IPO lose money. So I think that was also a big reason that was cited as to why the IPO was pulled last minute. It was also to protect the shareholders who were going to participate in the IPO. Right. And you mentioned the new Shanghai Star Board. Now, Ant was going for dual listing and in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and the new Shanghai Star Board. Why do you think it chose to, to do that? Yeah, I think the dual listing, well, first of all, there's more and more companies who are dual listed, although they tend not to do this like simultaneous dual listing, right? Most companies are doing what like Alibaba, the parent company did, which is list, you know, in the US or some major exchange and then do a secondary listing back home closer to Asia, That's usually right. in Hong Kong. Yeah. So I think for Ant, the thing was that they wanted to raise a ton of money, right? So you're not going to, you know, Hong Kong is a pretty good market, but you're not going to raise $35 billion and have the largest IPO in the world, you know, on just one exchange. And then secondly, I'm sure the Star Exchange really, really courted them pretty hard to go and list domestically because this would have been the first real Chinese internet IPO domestically. Like no other Chinese company has done their initial, like truly, truly initial public offering inside of China. 
of course, small companies, but not like a quality company of Ant's caliber. So that was, I think that was also a reason. But I think one thing that's interesting to note is that it did not choose to list in the U.S., And I think there are several reasons for that. Of course, the geopolitical tensions is one of them, but also Ant is such a well-known brand in China and in Asia generally. You basically, like, there's no way Ant was not going to be able to fill its order books for the offering. So, and, and as we can see, like, it was like in Hong Kong, I think it was 800 72 times oversubscribed, something insane like that. So the interest in this company is was just immense that they could get away with it. Most companies would not be able to pull off a dual listing at you know such a high valuation and generate so much investor demand. But Ant is special. That's right. Its a shares were priced at sixty eight point eight yuan per share at the end of October. You know which sets their market cap at bit over three hundred billion U.S. dollars, higher than any of the six state-owned Chinese banks. Why do you think it's worth so much and? It do you think it's worth this much? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have made the point that Ant would have been again three hundred ten billion dollars is what it was pricing at, but actually, gray market trades were trading at even higher than that, right? Mm-hmm. So it was like there were <laughs> trades going on that placed it closer to four hundred billion dollars. What's really crazy is that yeah, this would have made it the largest financial company in the world, right? Okay. So if you compare it to any bank. Mm-hmm. In the world, it would have been bigger. And again, ICBC is an example I like to use and said earlier, it's one of the largest banks in China, but it only has a $250 billion market cap. So if you look at just the pure number, it might not make sense. But again, if we go back and think about how Ant does business and is able to leverage this flywheel of products, right? So Ant, you know, is closely affiliated with Alibaba and Alibaba has like 60 plus percent of the e-commerce market share in China. And also Alipay is used by a billion people. So it has a ton of users and it's catching users when they're consuming, right? So like you, like you were saying earlier, when you're buying stuff, Ant's products come out as an option, right? For you to use Huawei, for example, to to buy anything during singles day, et cetera. So having that be available at at the point of sale is really, really powerful for, and especially when you have so much consumption and so many users. And all this generates so much data that is proprietary to Ant that the banks cannot see, that they then use to feed their Jima credit. And then using that credit data, they can very quickly make very good decisions on what financial products to offer you. So the Huawei, Diebei, you know, you about stuff. And this is a flywheel that's very powerful because we know that 80% of Ant's users use at least three products. I can easily imagine what they probably are. They're probably like, you know, you have all Huawei and, you know, Alipay, right? (laughs) And then then 40% of its users use five products. So this is like, really crazy, right? Because that means that, you know, you're getting so much value out of each user that you acquire. And second of all, is like that number actually increased double the last two years. That number actually doubled in the last two years. That means that their ability to get users to come on and convert them into using their other financial products is extremely efficient. And that is why, like I said, Ray Dalio says, you know, this 
company could have been a replacement, a candidate for replacing the entire banking system because it's that powerful. So in a sense, I do think the valuation was justified because the you can't just compare it to a bank. Banks don't have this virtuous flywheel that Ant has going for it. That's right. I mean, I'm always so impressed by how they market all the other or the new product offerings that they have through, you know, gamification, for example, and through various tactics. And so I get to learn about all the different new services that come up. I can definitely see how I think I'm in the 40% category where I use five products or more and <laughs> and my and and will probably add on as well as new products come out because for example as part of the singles day initiative in order to this year it's like petting a cat and i think last time there was a shopping festival i can't remember which one it might have been around middle of this year it was like yeah it was the train thing where you could build a train at people who are not familiar probably have no idea what i'm talking about but these are just it's a gaming aspect of, of shopping almost. And then as part of, you know, you need to level up within the, for example, you want to build a higher level train, then you need to, for example, watch some of their ads or visit different services that they offer. So it's such a good way for you to explore the product offerings of Alipay, of Taobao, and they work obviously very closely together whenever there is a shopping festival. So what you do on Alipay, you'll be rewarded on Taobao, for example. What do you think are the implications for the botched IPO towards the Alibaba group? Yeah, I think people have been talking about, because like you said, the two companies are so closely intertwined, a lot of probably was spending on Alibaba assets. But at the same time, you know, Alibaba is huge. I don't think it will be nearly as affected by these specific regulations. I think the regulations that will, this is slight tangent, but the regulations that will affect Alibaba more are further regulations that came out actually a week after these micro-lending regulations that were about platform economies and about anti-competitive practices. So for example, right now, and, and Tencent, and definitely does this. They basically force people to choose one service to go with, right? They basically make you sign exclusivity and that is going to be much more challenged in, in the future. I mean, in, in fact, the rules basically forbidden, but, you know, again, I don't know exactly how they're going to be interpreted, but these anti-competitive practices that has basically led Ant and Tencent to build these walled, huge walled gardens are being dismantled now by regulation. So I personally think that for Alibaba, micro-lending regulations are not as big of a concern as the anti-competitive regulations that came out. What is the current status of the IPO right now? And do you think they are going to go public in the next maybe half a year or beyond? So the, the IPO is on halt officially, obviously, because of the regulations have resulted in material changes to the company's business. So you cannot, you know, just like continue uh, with with the old documents and uh, price expectations for estimates on when it will happen. I've seen estimates from as low as six months to five years, right? Because it really depends on how the regulations will be interpreted and how Ant will try to, I guess, justify that, you know, it has, it is 
compliant with the new regulations and how it will explain to investors what its future prospects are when it's figured out how to be in full compliance. For the most bearish estimate of five years, basically the logic is that if Ant either has to take a huge hit to the credit lending business, or it maybe even has to divest it, which is like a, I guess, worst case scenario, then it will be effectively a very different business from the you know business that filed to go public. And it will then need to accumulate a few more years of uh, operations before the exchanges will even allow it to file again, right? So it's actually something like three years of operating history. But again, I think that really depends on if it's going to make some drastic decision like to divest the credit tech business, which would really make it a very different company. Yeah. And in that case, I think it would be, yeah, a few years before an IPO could happen. The three to five year timeline makes me feel almost bad for the Alibaba employees who are going to become super rich, but not really. Actually, like I heard from ex-ant employees that they would have been locked up for three years anyway. So I don't think you need to feel that bad for them. (laughs) Not Um, at all. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, again, I'm probably a little bit more optimistic that Ant's going to figure this out because, yeah, it's despite all this criticism about how powerful it is, how it might have been really leaning too hard into its uh, sort of monopolistic power dynamic, I think that it really solves a true problem for users, for for people like you, right? But also for small businesses. And it absolutely is is too big and too important. Not that it's too big to regulate, but that it's not going to be, you know, not the government's not going to try to like dismantle it completely. It really does solve a core user need. And I think that it's a matter of refining how it interacts with the rest of the pieces of the financial system. Definitely. And to be honest, from a user's perspective, I wouldn't mind using other company services as well if they provide me with really good products. Like I've uh, attempted or I've toyed around with JD Finance, their app as well. And then obviously also have Buddy and WeChat, but none of their um, apps are just as user-friendly or as engaging or entertaining as Alipay. So definitely a lot of lessons to be learned from there. And this is my final question. What do you think are some of the lessons of this entire fiasco for fintech companies and for regulators around the world or maybe for the U.S. audience? I think the way I would think about this is so I speak more mostly with investors and I think the investor takeaways should be that China is going to place, you know, stability and the long-term benefits of the financial ecosystem above any specific corporate interest. I think the regulators have made that very clear. I think that the people are very much in support of this point of view, basically no one I talked to in China on the ground was at all upset about the IPO being halted. They were actually all like, thank God it's halted because, you know, our interests are protected. Thank you, you know, regulators. So I think if you're investing in the markets over there, understand that that is how the regulators and the people think. Again, this was a little bit out of the blue for 
people because of the timing. But I think in the future, you can, if you hear that such regulations are on the horizon, they'll probably happen if they ensure the long-term health of the ecosystem from the perspective of the government. For fintech companies, I think that actually this could be really helpful, right? Well, if you're a fintech company operating in China, because regardless of what happens, Ant has some obstacles in front of it now more than it did before. I'm personally optimistic they'll be able to solve it, but as Ant is slowed down a little bit, then it might create opportunities uh, for fintech companies and startups to not supplant it completely, but like there's probably pockets of opportunity. And you already see the government trying uh, various other ways to make the ecosystem more dynamic and less, you know, just this Alipay, WeChat Pay duopoly. We don't have time to talk about it today, but like we just did an episode on the digital currency that the central bank is putting out. Mm. And one of the goals is to make it so that the traditional banking system, the apps that you don't like to use, right, have a chance to compete with your Alipays and WeChat Pays. So I think, yeah, maybe the lesson or takeaway is that the regulators might have been really easygoing in the first part of the last decade. They've realized the power of these internet platforms, and I think they're going to be a lot more hands-on when it comes to uh, setting the rules. These are some great takeaways. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Ray. You know, I've read obviously quite a few articles on the issue already, but it's always super insightful talking to you and hearing you, you know, break things down and adding in the US and also the investor perspective as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) And before I let you go, two questions. First, can you recommend something that has inspired you recently? You know, this is not a recent find or anything, but I've been listening to a specific podcast for a while. It just uh, occurred to me to share it with more people because a friend of mine was sharing her list of podcasts that she listens to. And this happened to be on the list. And I was like, whoa, because this is not a business podcast. It's actually a relationship podcast by the famous, (laughs) yeah. It's by the famous couples therapist, Esther Perel, and she she actually does two now. I I primarily listen to the one on relationships called um, Where Do We Begin? But I found that I just learned so much from each episode. These are real life conversations that she has, and she's just so insightful, and it makes me realize that everything at the end of the day is a communication problem. I guess I especially wanted to highlight her show this time because if you know, you're know you a listener that's having trouble uh, because of COVID, especially if you live in a country like me where COVID uh, response has been a disaster and it's affected you know your personal life, which in turn will affect your work life, uh, she has some good episodes on that. So uh, I would recommend it. Esther Perel, where do we begin? And she also has a work-related one as well. I don't remember. This sounds very interesting. I will definitely go check it out. And the second question is, um, if my audience wants to reach out or if they're interested in, for example, listening to the latest episode that you said you guys did on uh, the digital currency from the central bank, where can they find you? Techbuzzchina.com is where we put all of our material You can obviously always search for tech space, buzz space, China on any podcast app. And I am most easily reached on Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is spelled R-U-I-M-A. And you can reach us at Analyze Asia. Um, that's Analyze with an S on Twitter as well. And we are available on all podcasting platforms as well. 
Again, thank you so much, Ray, for coming onto the show, and I can't wait to have you on next time. Good luck with your book. You're going to finish it in no time, especially <laughs> with the lockdown. So. So. <laughs> thank you so much for having me.